Hello, and you're very welcome to episode three of The Week That Really Was with me, John McGurk, the editor of Grip Media and commentator David Quinn. This week, as every week, we try and look on this show at the uh, the top issues of the week, how they've been covered in the Irish media and whether we think there's another angle to them. And folks, there's really only one story this week. That story is, strangely enough, a Catholic priest in County Kerry, Father Sean Sheehy, giving a sermon in which to my years, and we'll, we'll come to David's view in a moment, but to my years, sounded an awful lot, very suspiciously like Catholic teaching. And for that, um, Father Sheehy has found himself in the eye of a national political storm, which for me, I have to say, raises a number of questions. We are told endlessly in Ireland that this is a new, tolerant, pluralist and inclusive state. And I want to begin, David, by talking about that word tolerance, because to me, tolerance isn't enjoying things that you like it's not you don't to- i don't tolerate watching manchester united play when they're winning i tolerate watching them when they're losing toleration is for things that offend you um and in this country we seem absolutely incapable these days of tolerating things that offend us we had a law about it we talked about it last week in hate speech and now we have an example this week where somebody has said something that we don't like and we've had a national meltdown about it am i wrong david no, not at all. I mean, liberalism um, uh, is facing a kind of huge internal contradiction now uh, between its desire to tolerate, but at the same time, its increasing wish and power to suppress what it considers to be intolerable views. And it can't make up its mind which way it wants to go. You see, liberalism has always kind of said uh, for the kind of couple of centuries of its existence, nobody should control the public arena um, nobody should control politics and public debate. So we liberals are going to be a kind of referee um, that ensures neutrality and that everybody has a kind of fair say um, and that nobody is deciding the game in advance, uh, politically, morally, socially. So that's supposed to be the way it works, a neutral referee. But increasingly, it's a participant because what is actually increasingly saying is, you can say that, um, you can do that. Um, uh, we're going to bring in laws to stop you. Uh, We're going to start off with social censure to stop you. Um, We're going to bring in cancel culture to stop you. But now we're going to go even further, as we were discussing, we're going to bring in laws to stop you. We're going to call anything um, that uh, you say that we really don't like, we're going going to call it hate speech and maybe even prosecute you. Um, so that doesn't seem to me like liberalism is playing the kind of neutral referee it's always claimed to be. I mean, at this point, if you're a person with conservative uh, views of use to the right, it's like going onto a football pitch and you're in front of a hostile crowd in terms of public debate. You're starting 3-0 down and the referee is prepared to red card you for the slightest offence, whereas the side daylight gets away with absolutely anything. Uh, and so it's very hard to have a fair debate under those kind of circumstances. And of course, this is why, by the way, in desperation, people turn to kind of people who are, you know, uh, you know, vaguely are completely barbaric, like we say a Donald Trump or a Bolsonaro in Brazil, that just their frustration spills over and they end up supporting these sort of guys. So of course then become liberalism worst nightmare because these are the people they don't want to emerge, but actually the way mm. they're reading politics is nearly almost you know, preordaining that people like this emerge are, uh, you know, Farage in Britain. Yeah, I mean, look, for me, it is as simple as this. Tolerance, it feels to me, 
right? And if you're a, a liberal listening to this and you think McGurk is wrong, you know, write to me, email me, tweet me, tell me why I'm wrong. But it feels to me like tolerance in Ireland is a one-way street. That when progressives and liberals in Ireland say we want a tolerant society, what they mean is they want a society in which David Quinn is tolerant and the Bishop of Down and Connor is tolerant. Um, that, you know, we have to tolerate, for example, gay people, trans people, minorities, and so on. As if we don't already, as if somehow, um, you know, if you have a problem or some bishop has a problem with the existence of gay people when they don't. But this is what they mean by tolerant society. You have to tolerate the things you dislike. Meanwhile, we, the people in power, don't have to tolerate anything we dislike. You know, we don't have to tolerate, we, you know, if, if you're George Hook and you say something we don't like on the radio, you're fired. We don't have to tolerate that. If you are uh, Kevin Myers and you write a column and use a bad form of words and you apologize, we don't have to tolerate that. You're fired. You're gone. If you're a priest in Kerry and you uh, give a sermon in your own private church, you're not, well, it's not his own church. He was a guest, he's a guest uh, preacher because the other guy was on holidays. But you give a sermon in a Catholic church to a Catholic congregation on matters of, con of, of Catholic doctrine, we don't have to tolerate that. That's what they mean by tolerance. They don't mean, I mean, it's a it's bullshit. This is a podcast, so I can use phrases like that. I don't have to worry because we're not on radio, David. But it is it's bullshit. Um, it's a myth that they tell themselves about what they think they are. But the truth is, they're the opposite of that. They are they are. I mean, they, they've inherited all the clothes of what they considered um, John Charles McQuaid to be. I mean, they're just missing the crozier at this stage. Yeah. Do you see? I guess. I mean, they would say something like. Um, we want to create a society in which intolerant things are never said, and therefore we got the police public debate all the time in order to ensure only tolerant things get said. But what this is translating into in practice is the shutting down of debate in a whole range of areas. So, for example, you try to debate the right to life and you say, well, I'm anti-abortion, uh, therefore you're sexist and misogynistic. Um, as we've done already on this uh, podcast, if you question immigration levels, well, you're racist and we can't allow that either. Um, and if you believe in the traditional nature of marriage, well, then you're also an extremely bad person. And we're not going to tolerate that kind of speech either. So you just end up with a debate that's incredibly constricted. Um, and the Overton window, as they call it, which is kind of the range of acceptable opinion, just begins to become narrower and narrower and narrower until it's basically just liberals talking to themselves or allowing just far left critics to say you're not going fast enough. And that's kind of what Irish debate and Western debate um, in many countries has become. And what and the whole Father Sean Sheehy this week was a good example. Now, Father Sean Sheehy, um, he's 80 years of age. He has spent most of his life in America. He has an American accent, as people may have heard on the various programs he appeared on, unwisely in my view. Um, I think a couple of his outings were just car crash territory um, and he'd been better off just staying away, but he just couldn't resist going on these programs. Um, he kind of made it very easy for, uh, you know, critics and the critics of the church to kind of caricature and stereotyping because he was almost caricaturing and self-stereotyping himself, in my view. Um, but actually, the kind of sermon he delivered is actually exceptionally rare because priests for the most part don't want to offend their congregations ever so they tend to give very safe sermons i don't particularly have anything against that uh, i mean it'd be nice if there was a few sermons that were a bit more challenging 
Um, but for the most part, they don't want to offend their congregations because they want them to come back next Sunday and they want to be nice. Um, and again, that's fine, up to a point, so long as you throw in a little bit of challenge. Um, but this particular priest stood out because he said things that were clumsy but, but sure, and that people find offensive. Sure, David, that's why I stopped going to Mass. It genuinely is why I stopped going to mass because, like, you go there on a Sunday to the average Irish church, and the—I mean—the sermon is, you know, uh, something about it. the most recent one I heard was a priest who spent the whole time talking about the local football team's upcoming final. Now, maybe that was a one-off. Maybe mm. that was a one-off. But I mean, like, I could hear that in the pub. I don't need to hear it from the pulpit. Um, I want to talk a little bit, uh, and I, 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 perhaps I can be—I'll be more free in what I'll say about the subject than you would be—about uh, Bishop Raymond Brown down in Kerry, who came out in the aftermath of this and said, "Oh well, it's not actually Catholic teaching what he said." I mean, come on! But what, what is the—I mean, I was saying to somebody in Grip this week who wanted to write another article about this. I was saying, well, "Why are you writing this?" I mean, it's not our job to defend uh, what the Catholic bishops won't defend, um, and I—I I, you know, I don't want to criticize them fully because I understand they feel beaten down and all the rest of it. But this was an opportunity for teaching because I think the sermon in question, David, was a little bit harsh. I think it, the Catholic teaching was presented in its most caricature-esque sense of, you know, um, gay people are bad and so on and so forth. That's a, an impression that could have been taken. There was a perfect opportunity for the bishop to come out and say, that the teaching of the church, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that every person is called to chastity. That includes priests, obviously, who are called to celibacy. It includes straight people who are called to um, restrain their sexual impulses to inside the institution of marriage. It applies to gay people as well. That is the church's message to all people, that chastity is a virtue. Th there was an opportunity to articulate that and say, this is what perhaps the priest should have said because this is our teaching. Instead, the bishop comes out and says, oh, well, that's not actually the teaching of the church. I mean, if I was a priest in Kerry, I'd quit. Yeah, well, I mean, um, so I'm writing about this for the Sunday Times this weekend, so I don't want to anticipate too much of what I'm going to be saying. Um, but the bishop, um, so what he said, basically, this is not the Christian position. I think it was that he said rather than teaching. And I was trying to kind of parse this and figure, what does he mean by that? Because clearly... Um, Father Sheehy said nothing that contradicts Christian teaching. Because you can just look up the catechism and you'll see it's in agreement with him. And so it was 2,000 years of Christianity on planet Earth agrees with him. So what can the bishop have meant? So I'd say it was something like this. Um, the church used to very harshly emphasize and enforce standards, uh, certain moral standards. And if you fell foul of them, you were going to be in serious trouble. And that was especially in the sexual arena. Um, and so this is no longer the Christian position. Uh, he may be trying to say something like that. And now, particularly in the era of Pope Francis, we want to emphasize mercy much more than standards and be as welcoming as possible to everyone. And that what Father Sheehy was doing was not in sync and in step with this new church that Pope Francis wants um, to inaugurate. So I think he may have meant something like that. But just say that, okay? Make clear what you mean by that, because... He gave too strongly the impression that he was just throwing the priest overboard so he would avoid all trouble for himself. Yeah, well, that, I think that's what he was doing. I don't think he just gave the impression of that. I mean, that's what. I mean, uh, by the way, if the, if the bishop is listening to this, you know, you're more than welcome to come on this podcast. Uh, we'd love to have you. We'd love to talk these things through with you because I have to say, obviously, Grift has a has a readership that's disproportionately made up of people who, who it's not disproportionately, but we have a large readership of people who are faithful Catholics who feel 
that the other media outlets in this country look down on them and smear their views and treat them as backwards, whereas we don't. We 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 we, we never would. And I can't count the number of emails I've had this week in absolute horror at this story and the way it's being treated and the bemusement that this is even a controversy. Um, first of all, about the country, but the anger, David, that came to came through our communication systems at the bishop. And the way he had they was perceived to have thrown um, the priest under the bus. I, I don't think that should be underestimated, because yeah. there's a sense, sense out there that if you are a Catholic in this country and you feel, for whatever reason, that your values are under attack by society at large, and the first time somebody, you know, in my view, poorly, I, I, I won't try and say that this guy did it well or didn't offend people because he did it poorly and he did offend people, but he did try to articulate a sort of robust Catholic vision of how society should view social values and the bishop threw him under the bus. I think yeah. that disillusioned a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, again, um, just the time and the place that Father Xi chose. So, as you said earlier, um, He's not the parish priest and he was only standing in for the parish priest who was actually away in a, in a parish pilgrimage in the Holy Land. And so uh, Father Sheehy is simply filling in for him. Now, if you're effectively a guest, uh, you've kind of got to be able And you don't start saying things that are, you know, a lot of people are going to find controversial. And also, even today, you do get a mixed age group at Mass, and this apparently was an anniversary Mass. Now, many Masses, of course, are anniversary Masses of somebody who died, but you're going to get a more mixed group than usual, and you're going to get children. So you've got to give a sermon that's kind of family-friendly, and he starts talking about condoms and promiscuity and all the rest of it. And, um, if, you, if, if you had a kid beside you, and you're the most orthodox practicing Catholic in the world, you're still wondering, okay, what does my eight-year-old make of this? So you've got to, you've got to read the room. And there's also... Um, if you want to make remarks like that, you're probably better off saving them for a different occasion. Um, uh, so I, I just don't think um, Sunday Mass, when you're the guest celebrant, is the place to do it. That was also what Bishop Brown was kind of driving at what he had to say. I'm not defending him. I'm just trying to be as understanding as I possibly can towards the position he took. And um, also just to kind of say again that uh, it, it it wasn't right for Father Sheehy when he's not the PP to go giving a sermon like that. And of course, nowadays, all these masses are live streamed. And um, uh, so somebody gets a clip of it and puts it online and then it just goes viral. And by the way, this weekend is kind of like, in a way, uh, what August is, because there's very little happening news-wise. It's a bank holiday weekend. It's a midterm break. Um, and so this was just like in August, perfect grist for the media mill, a priest who just went too far and said things that are too controversial uh, for the average taste, including, by the way, the taste of the Irish Catholic. And so we have this big controversy that even government ministers like Simon Coveney felt he had to stick his uh, two big boots into, which I just found amazing. I call for an apology. I think I think the you know if I was the priest, I would give a, an apology in the manner of a government minister. Which is to say... Mistakes were made. Lessons will be learned. Yeah, I, I like that. That, that means for for a, for a politician in this country to ask anybody else to offer a sincere apology for anything is pushing it. Let's be honest. When was the last time a politician in this country? But I mean, we live in a country where 
uh, you've got a housing crisis, a health crisis, an in- inflation crisis. I mean, I, I can't remember what the next crisis is, but there are more. Um, we, we can't mark our school, our leaving cert exams on time. Our junior cert results come out in December because no, we can't we can't employ markers for those. And we've got politicians asking for other people to apologise for something they said in the church. I mean, come off it. Well, it was a great I mean, distraction. It was a great distraction. It was a great distraction. I mean, it was it was to uh, it was it, it was a great distraction. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And it was a great distraction for for everybody, really, in a sense. But I mean, I I am I keep coming back to this. I am fascinated about the kind of country we are becoming because I think we are so wrapped up now in this new identity of ourselves that there's this kind of equation of you know two separate equations. On the one hand, you have old Ireland plus Catholicism plus repression. And on the other hand, you have New Ireland plus social liberalism plus, you know, liberation and tolerance and compassion and fairies. Equals happiness. Uh, equals happiness. And I think we ha- we live in a country now where everyone is so, they believe it is mandatory in order to be a member of polite society to identify so strongly with that second equation that if you represent the first one in any way, you must run away from it. You, you absolutely, you absolutely must. I, I wrote in a piece about this that one of the most fascinating programs on Irish television at the moment is Reeling in the Years. Uh, it's actually, it's actually on television as I'm as I'm watching this. My, my wife is looking at it. I see it. Where they, where they curate uh, our memories for us. Yes, and the whole point of that program, the message of that program is: look at how far we have come. Mm. That's 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 that is the reason that program is on. You know, it, it's not reeling in the years to remember, to, you know, to 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 say things were better in the past. It is reeling in the years to it has a message. It's two messages. Number one, look how lucky you are, you plebs, to live in a country that has come from this dark black place. And number two, look how far we have all come as a society. Look how far we have progressed. Um, and there's this sense that anything at all. That the dates back or harks back to that old Ireland must be not only rejected but condemned as sort of sinful. I mean, well, <laughs> it's a kind of funny thing because it's a religious narrative basically, and it's the narrative you find in the Book of Exodus. We were in slavery, and we were brought out of slavery uh, through the wilderness and through many trials and tribulations, eventually to the promised land, with. RTE standing in from Moses. And every year we must mark the Passover and we must have unleavened bread to remind us of the slavery from which we came mm-hmm. and from the bitter place from which we came and celebrate the fact that we have now been liberated and led to the promised land by RTE again standing in for Moses. We must get continual, continual reminders of this. So we must be shown movies all the time to remind us of our terrible past, like the Magdalene Sisters, that's shown on basically rinse and repeat. Um, other movies like Philomena, um, about the mother trying to find her, her child after he was taken from her in a mother and baby home years ago. That's constantly shown. Um, uh, RTE just re-ran a documentary, only a two-part documentary, it only ran a few months ago, called Ireland's Dirty Laundry, about the Magdalene Laundries. So there we go again. And it's just non-stop because we must be constantly reminded of this terrible place from which we came, from which Ireland, from which RTE liberated us. And by the way, they absolutely and completely believe this narrative themselves without any complication. It's cartoonish, it's black and white, it's simplistic, but they absolutely believe it themselves. Yeah, it's um it's extraordinary, you know, because I went to, I mean, I'm I'm not that I'm a sort of an in-between generation. I mean, I I did not 
so so I suppose people like Dermot Morgan, for example, are 15, 16, 20 years older than me, um, seem to have grown up in an Ireland entirely different to the one I grew up in. Yet I grew up in an Ireland where when I went to school, homosexuality was illegal, abortion was illegal, divorce was illegal and so on. I'm old enough to remember when we legalized divorce. So I grew up in that Ireland that we're told is very, very repressive. And yet I have entirely different memories of it to what all these other people who are 10 or 15 years older seem to have. Because I was watching the other day a clip with, uh, with I mean, God rest him, Dermot Morgan, a, a brilliant comedian, probably the best we've ever produced. He was talking on a British chats show about how dark and repressive Ireland was. And this was in about 1993. I mean, I was in Ireland in 1993. I, I, I don't remember any of that. Maybe I was too young, but I don't remember Ireland in 1993 being a horrible, dark, repressive place. An awful lot of this is is myth-making. I mean, it's like the, it's like the GPO, I think. You know, you know the, the, the way everybody in this country at this stage has a relative who is in the GPO. Um, it's like everybody in this country has a memory of being oppressed. I I want to clarify, I know there were lots of people who were. Mm. I know there were lots of people who had horrible stories in laundries, and I know there was abuse and all the rest of it. But I'm saying for the average person, um, there's, there's this myth that we've basically, as you say, come out of a terrible place into a place that's so much better today. And the second part of what I'm saying, which I, I, I don't want to hog the conversation, uh, mm. I'll come back to it, is that I don't think we're vastly better today. There's an awful lot of misery in this country today. There's loneliness, there's social isolation, there's family breakdown, there's drug addiction, mm. there is antisocial behavior. There's all of these modern problems which apparently are no comparison at all to um, somebody being told in a Christian brother's school that they'd go to hell if they interfered with themselves, that, which seems to be the narrative. Well, I mean, again, you know, if, so I grew up essentially in the 1980s. That's when I, you know, came of age and went to university and left school and all the rest of it. And um, uh, I can assure you there wasn't a repressive atmosphere when I was in university at all. Uh, and most of my peers were... Uh, you know, as soon as they came up to Dublin, basically, for the most part, stopped going to Mass. Um, uh, but obviously there was groups um, who, you know, did feel, um, you know, the sharp end of the morality which existed back then. And there was obviously unmarried mothers was one group and gay people were another group um, um, who would have felt, um, you know, genuinely oppressed mm -hmm. and objectively were oppressed by the kind of society in um, in which we lived, but it's obviously not the whole picture because I mean, like you would have memories of your grandparents, for instance. Um, yep. I mean, my mother's mother was born in 1905. She was a good lady. Um, all of the older adults I remember who were formed by that Ireland were good people who kind of, you know, rarely put themselves first, um, had a very strong sense of duty, had a very strong civil sense who tended to join things, who were politically active, who were proud of their country, and so on and so forth. Um, they would have had, I presume, you know, the prejudices of their age uh, and the times in which they grew up. But, you know, the ones I remember were nearly all incredibly fine people. And they were formed by this supposedly absolutely horrible Ireland. Um, and I just didn't see it in my parents. And I just didn't see it from the grandparents so I can remember the uncles and aunts coming into the house and all the rest of it. One of the things that uh, we were talking about reading in the years, one of the things that programme does, I think, 
is that it paints a very distorted picture. So, for example, it will pull up a clip of some moment from the Late Late Show in 1980-something or other. And Gay Byrne will have been talking about something that was allegedly controversial at the time, like, say, condoms. And it will cut in the clip to some sort of mustachioed dude with a Roscommon accent and a pair of rosary beads in one hand saying, this is a disgrace, Gay. Mm. And the idea that you're supposed to be conveyed is that this is somehow representative of the time, when in actual fact, that dude with the mustache and the and the rosary beads was as much out of step with society then as he would be today. Mm. Um, or he have always done this. They have always platformed the extremes. They do it today. I mean, they, you know, people in re- watching Reading in the Years uh, 30 years from now will get the impression that Paul Murphy and Richard Boyd Barrett were the central figures of our time because they're never off the television. Um so so this is how the media deceives because it presents it presents these isolated at the time staged moments as somehow representative of the society in which those moments happened mm-hmm. um, and it's all part of creating this narrative that you know such and such you know that 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 Alice Glenn for example was the mainstream in Ireland in the 1980s i mean you were older than i in the 1980s mm-hmm. but i don't think alice glenn was ever mainstream in ireland I think she was always on, you know, perceived to be on a particular hardcore fringe. The center might have been more in her direction, but she, you know, the idea that somebody like that, and again, I don't mean to disrespect the woman, mm. um, was 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 the mainstream. Is this narrative that's presented to us now to suggest that we're much more liberated and we've been liberated from that? I I reject it. I, I always have, but I mean, am I wrong? No, no, no. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, and there'll be. Certain of my readers kind of shocked and amazed to hear this when the 1986-1983 pro-life amendment was passed. So I was at university at the time. I didn't vote. I didn't like either side. I wasn't particularly interested in social issues back then. I was massively interested in politics and particularly, by the way, foreign politics. This is the time of the Cold War and Reagan and Thatcher um, and all the rest of it. So I remember being massively interested in that, having huge debates over the lunch table uh, in NHE Dublin, uh, as it was then, Dublin City University, as it is now. I did a Bachelor of Business Studies degree, by the way, nothing to do with journalism. But we used to have big rows about Reagan and about Thatcher and about um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament and all the rest of it. Um, uh, I don't remember being in any debates about abortion whatsoever in that era. I just didn't take much interest, didn't take much interest in the divorce referendum of that era either. And it's kind of funny because then I become kind of like the kind of one of the leading kind of conservative campaigners in the country. So I don't know where it all went wrong, John. Um, <laughs> but like, there you are. Um, but these were the debates anyway we had over the lunch table in NHE, and these were the sort of things that dominated. Um, and I do remember... Um, in the 83 referendum. Uh, I, I do remember some people kind of arguing about it and debating it, but I just took no interest in them. I took no part in them. And I remember not liking either side all that much. And it was actually quite a big abstention rate in that referendum. I think maybe it was about a 40% abstention rate. But on the other hand, um, uh, like what was the turnout in the 2015 marriage referendum and the 2018 one? It wasn't much above 60% so far as I remember. So there's plenty of people abstained in them as well. Yeah, because, the imp- because the impression we're now given is that kind of in both cases, it was a 99% yes vote on a 99% turnout, like in Albania in the days of communism. And it just is not the case. And so we're, this is also kind of part of the exit of the story that, um, look, the whole people were liberated and we all rose up in celebration. And again, an awful lot of people didn't vote. And actually more people than they give the impression voted the quote-unquote wrong way both times. 
Yeah, well, this is it. But look, you have said something interesting there because you brought up Albanian communism and your own record in Cold War politics, which brings <laughs> me neatly on to something I wanted to talk about. Which it was is... one of the few victories I've ever had, John. You say I helped bring down the Iron <laughs> Curtain. Right. You did. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings brings me neatly on to uh, to to uh, our own resident Cold Warrior, um, President Michael D. Higgins, who, um, well, I won't I won't speculate what side he was on in the Cold War, but. He certainly well, he always, was, well, 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 I can speculate. I remember him well. Um, he never had a good word to say about, about the United States. No. Um, massively against the Reagan visit was that 1984 or thereabouts. Uh, big pal of Richard Damon Casey, who was head of Troker and also very critical of American foreign policy, particularly in respect to South America. So I remember it all well. You know, that's a very funny thing that's often forgotten is is how authority how 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 authoritarianly left wing on some issues the bishops were because we get this 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 perception of them as crozier wielding social conservatives who wanted to over you know a, a spy camera in everyone's bedroom but in fact a lot of these people like casey as you mentioned would fit in perfectly well on the hard left of the labor party had they been politicians um, and and had some of that personal, you had that very liberal personal morality, as we now know as well. And I think that's often forgotten that that on on some of these issues, not all of them. I mean, there were there are bishops who took the other side too, but some of these people were very authoritarianly left. Well, I mean, like I don't, I mean, the church, when it comes to economic issues, would mainly be on the left, and when it comes to its kind of uh, outlook on the world and world politics would be kind of broadly on the left, if you want to put it that way, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I don't begrudge it in the tiniest little bit. I can understand why people would adopt those positions, but it kind of, it is nonetheless at variance with the idea that the church is some kind of like um, Donald Trump and Republican Party a prayer because it's very far from the truth. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was a little segue. I wanted to talk about because uh, Michael D and the left did have a big win this week in Brazil, where where President Lula, uh, President elect Lula, I should say, Lula da Silva, Lula da Silva, Lula by name, yeah, Lula. That yeah, we won't mm. we won't say, but he is he has replaced Jair Bolsonaro, uh, or will replace Jair Bolsonaro coming start of January, mm. and nobody in the world was happier about this than our president, who um, took it upon himself to write a letter of syrupy congratulations that was, you know, a child writing to Santa Claus to thank him for their Christmas present would barely manage to be more um, delightful than the president was in this letter to to Lula da Silva and to invite him to come to Ireland, which, you know, to me was interesting because I wasn't aware that the president had the authority to issue invitations for state visits in his own right. And I also was surprised to see a letter that syrupy to go to uh, the, the new president-elect in Brazil when, you know, when it came to congratulating the president-elect of the United States in 2016, I, came, I went back and looked and he got one line, one line from Michael D. Uh, Joe Biden got four lines, in fairness. Lula da Silva, though, got a two-page letter about how fantastic he was, uh, which strikes me that, you know, the president is supposed to be an apolitical office holder. He's supposed to represent all of us. He's supposed to represent, David, you and me who didn't vote for him. Uh, well, I didn't. I don't know if you did. I um, um, as much as he represents uh, the people who are most committed to electing him when he was a Labour TD for Galway. Well, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it. He doesn't yeah. even try. He doesn't try to do it. I mean, no, let's same, be honest. Same and Margaret Thatcher died um, 
it was a kind of very um, guarded um, statement from him about her legacy. You know, he admitted the legacy was huge, but of course, it's the legacy he wouldn't like. Um, but I remember when Fidel Castro died, he was kind of a giant of our time. And when Hugo Chavez died, um, who just inflicted disaster upon Venezuela, there was kind of effusive praise of him when he died as well. Because Michael D. Higgins is a kind of, the best way to put it is, is he's romantic. All right. He romanticizes revolutionary movements, particularly in South America. So he romanticized Castro, romanticized Chavez. Um, that's what he does. Um, and then you end up overlooking the manifest faults of these regimes because, you see, they are leading us to the promised land. And so we are going through the wilderness, but we will eventually get to the promised land. And so it'll all be worthwhile. And so there's this kind of utopian vision, which people like Michael D. Higgins have not lost. And so they see somebody like uh, Lula, de, uh, Lula da Silva as part of that same thing. And of course, he won, by the way, by 51% to 49%. So it was really, really tight margins. And Bolsonaro's party has held on to the main states and I think the Congress as well. So it's a very, very 50-50 country. And by the way, it's very difficult to get objective coverage about what's going on there. I know practically nothing about Bolsonaro whatsoever. So I decided to try and, okay, well, let's find out a little bit about him and let's see if I can find some articles that are dispassionate and objective. Um, so I did find a BBC one, which was surprisingly objective. This is when he was elected in 2018. And so I said, well, well, why is he popular? And I said, because he's tough on crime, which is very bad in Brazil. And his economic policies, he doesn't want the place to go out of control, and, and um, which often happens, as you know, the South American economies. Uh, and he's socially conservative. Um, you know, too much logging for my taste of the of the Amazonian rainforest, but that's kind of all we know about about him and and his big mouth. And what we weren't told is that um, uh, Lula's party is extremely corrupt. That he was in prison for nineteen months on corruption charges himself. Now he got out of prison. His supporters say he should never have been in there. His detractors say he got out in the technicality. But can the media please do us the compliment of telling us these things? so we can judge for ourselves. But it's this black and white simplistic presentation of politics as usual. What what I find fascinating is the way that you mentioned the Amazon rainforest and you're entirely correct. I mean, what you 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 divulged a bit of a secret there when you said that you weren't a social conservative when you were here in college. My my sort of little left wing I wasn't liberal either. Was you were you were, you were you were you were agnostic, but my sort of little left wing wing peccadillo, if you want to call it left wing, and I don't think one should, is that I'm sort of a bit um, of, a, of, a, of an animal rights and nature lover. Mm. Um, so the, the what's happening in the Amazon to me is one of the great crimes of our century, mm. um, one of the great crimes of our era. And I don't, by the way, believe that Lula is going to suddenly reverse it because this isn't driven by government policy. It is driven by local farmers at local level. And a, lot um, of the, a lot of the same thing is happening over the border in Bolivia. Yep, the Amazon uh, is not just in Brazil. It's 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 not. But what I'm interested in always in these things is the, is the urgency with which they are presented. So, for example, the Amazon is a major issue because you know this is my theory. We don't like Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is like Trump. Bolsonaro is like Brexit. Bolsonaro is far Johnson. right. He's bad. You know, he's one of those litany of people we say at night we want rid of. Brexit, Johnson, Bolsonaro, the far right, get rid of them. Oh, and look what he's doing at the Amazon. Isn't he terrible? Um, contrast him with uh, President Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Thank you, David. President of China, who yeah. this who this year alone will oversee a government that that opens 
uh, I think, 4,000 coal-fired power plants in mm. that country. Um, you know, what they are going to add in CO2 emissions this year is more than pretty much the entirety of Europe will will cut. Um, and yet, when do you ever hear uh, RTE talking about the disgraceful environmental record of the Communist Party of China? They don't give a hoop. They don't care. No, I mean, no, it, it might be no. mentioned. It might be mentioned in passing in the context of the um, of of the maybe the COP summit. And and if it is mentioned, it'll be mentioned in the context of China is the world's biggest polluter, but it's making wonderful efforts and will will start cutting its pollution by twenty sixty or some such thing. I mean, the, the, for me, the Amazon thing when it comes to Bolsonaro is just another media flag of convenience because. Because they, they don't care about the environment with any great consistency. Uh, certainly the Amazon rainforest being chopped down when Lula was last president, which he was from 2008 to 2014 or something before he was investigated mm. for corruption. We never heard people saying, oh, this is Lula's actions. It, it, it was just a thing that was happening in Brazil that was bad. It wasn't what did, what did happen under him, in fairness, is the amount of logging the Amazon declined. Uh, and then it obviously went back up again under Bolsonaro. So we see what happens now subsequently. Now that Lula's going to be back in power, although again it'll be in a deeply divided country uh, and deeply contested politically. So, so we'll see what happens. But in terms of the environment, you're right. I mean, um, the only offenders they really point to are people who are on the right, and they don't point to countries which are also offenders and sometimes much worse offenders who don't fit into the neat narrative. So everything at the end of the day gets overridden by ideology and politics and gets through the, gets put through the filter and seen through the lens and we're not allowed to view it objectively so again we get this very distorted view of the world and you know it's a, it's a mantra for me the functional equivalent of fake news is media bias because it distorts our view of everything when you get this same view of everything and lots of things don't get told to you and other things get overemphasized and so that is like fake news because it just leads to a misunderstanding of everything um, which, again, is partly why we're running this podcast as our small little effort to try and redress the balance. Yes. Well, well, well on the subject of, of, of media bias, I, I want to make a prediction uh, on a separate topic. Mm. And that prediction is that I want people to think ahead or think back, depending on when you're listening to this, to the midterm elections in the United States on what is next Tuesday for us, the, uh, the 8th of November. And on that evening, one of two things happen. Either the Republicans will win or the Democrats will win. And I promise you, I promise you, if the Democrats win, the media will line up the morning after to tell us that this was a key vote on the matter of the Dobbs ruling and the overturning of Roe versus Wade and that abortion was what won it for the Democrats. And I promise you equally that if the Republicans win, the next morning, you will hear that actually this was a vote purely about the economy and about inflation and that it can't possibly be read into this being a vote to endorse the Dobbs ruling, which, by the way, is correct. The second the second position is the correct one, mm -hmm. regardless regardless of what the result is. Democrats win, Democrats lose, Republicans win, Republicans lose. It'll be about the economy. It'll be about inflation. It'll be about some other confection of issues, including January 6th, Trump all the rest of it. But if the Democrats happen to overperform, I promise you, we will be told this was a backlash to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean... Do, do, you uh, think, yeah. do you think I'm wrong about that, David, or do you think that's a fair assessment of what will happen? No, I think you're correct. Um, 
I saw a CNN opinion poll today, uh, which asked people what are the most important issues to you. So 51% said the economy. I'm surprised it wasn't higher, to be honest. And only 15% said abortion. And by, by the way, up to 15%, half of them might have been Republicans who were delighted at Dobbs. So it's important to them because Roe versus Wade was repealed. And the other half of the 15% say it's important to me because I hate the fact that Roe versus Wade was repealed. But it's only 15%. I mean, America's high inflation. The, the, the Federal Reserve increased um, uh, its interest rate by 0.75%, exactly what the Bank of England have also done this week and what the European Central Bank did a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, I mean, um, RTE was trying to present the interest rate increase by the Bank of England as Armageddon. I'm not telling us what the Federal Reserve did yesterday and what the ECB did two weeks ago, exactly the same interest rate increase. So again, you're just looking at this, please stop insulting people's intelligence by not telling them everything that's relevant to this story. But anyway, the Republicans um, are almost certainly going to win the House of Representatives, and there's a reasonable chance that they're going to win the Senate as well. And yeah, I well, noticed, by the way, and we get into this, obviously, much more next week when we know the results, Biden is only being asked to campaign in states where the Democrats are well ahead and he can't do any damage. They're getting Barack Obama to um, campaign in the swing states because he's still popular. But Biden uh, is not popular in those swing states and could damage the Democratic cause. I, I'll make another... I'm sorry, I mean, I'm making an awful lot of predictions this evening, so I'm bound to get at least one wrong, but I'll make another one since I'm on a roll. And that is that in the days after the elections next week, the midterm elections, we will start to see pieces in the American media. And because they're in the American media, they'll be legitimized and we'll start hearing them in the Irish media. Because once there's no election on, you can say certain things without fear of damaging the good guys. And I think we will start seeing pieces about how there are concerns about Joe Biden's ability to do the job given yes. his age. And that perhaps it might be time for somebody else to take over next time. Thank you, Joe, for getting rid of Donald Trump and all the rest of it. But it's just too important um, and you're too unpopular and you're too old and you should get a gold watch and retire and we should put somebody else in. Is Joe uh, is, is Joe campaigning in all 54 states, by the way? Um, I mean, for those who might know, he said a few days ago, that's a 54 states, isn't that correct? <laughs> did, yeah. Well, that's a. I think every president makes that mistake at some stage. Uh, I think. I think. I think both George W. Bush and Barack Obama made it as well. To be fair to him, I don't but ever remember. I don't ever remember uh, anybody, any <laughs> person who has to be t-shirt. You know, getting the number of counties here wrong. <laughs> well, it's a very controversial number, David. Now, how many counties is the right answer? But well, least, that's, a, that's another, another, another day. But yeah, I, I think I think it's it, one of the things that happens, um, and this always happens after elections in the United States, and because it happens. In the American media, it happens in the Irish media too, which is stories that would hurt the Democrats during the campaign can't be told until after the campaign. So mm -hmm. for the moment, I take the case of there's a guy in Pennsylvania, the Democratic nominee there, now a guy called John Fetterman, a uh, very impressive candidate, a hardcore progressive liberal, but has kind of a macho image, uh, if that makes sense. Um, a, a very a very good candidate, whether you agree with him or not, but tragically had a stroke in the middle of the campaign. And has been mm, trying and, ha and had been trying to recover. Um, or but his campaign had been telling people he had made a full recovery and all the rest of it. And then two weeks ago, he did a debate with his Republican opponent in which it became very apparent, tragically, that while he may make a full recovery, he certainly yet. he certainly hasn't recovered yet. Mm. Um, and he was uh, he was he was mashing words together. He wasn't hearing questions. He was. Yeah, that's it was, tough. It, it was a it was a it was it was not an easy thing to watch. But the but the the story has been. You know, any 
any criticism of that is ableist. You know, this guy is clearly recovering from a stroke. He's going to be better and all the rest of it. But immediately after, if if he loses on Tuesday, and he may not, I predict that, that the story will change immediately to how did the Democrats not replace this candidate? He clearly was unfit and so on. So there's this, there's this narrative, and it happens in the US, where if a story is not helpful to the Democrats, it won't be told during the campaign. But as soon as the elections are over and the blame game starts, we'll suddenly start hearing all these concerns that were articulated during the campaign, that Joe Biden wasn't, had lost a step, he's not the same communicator, maybe it's time for him to step aside. You know, and that is, I think... a fun- I mean, that is a function of how the media across the way, and it's a Western problem, which has a, a broadly liberal worldview, acts in a very partisan way mm-hmm. to make sure that new stories are told at a time that is most advantageous or will do least harm to the progressive cause to which we all subscribe. And partisanship is fine so long as you get the two types of partisanship so we can find, you know, uh, um, a balance and read both sides of the story and come to our own conclusions I'm conscious, Don, we're speaking, we've spoken for about the 45 minutes. We have. Uh, John, sometimes it feels like we're just getting started, but I do think that's probably enough um, for today. This has been episode three. Um, we will, some people have been asking, by the way, will we have guests on this show? Uh, we will. Um, we're working on that. Uh, we, we've reached out to a couple of people. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but, but there are some interesting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Some people have also asked, uh, I should say at the end, you know, is this on Spotify? Is it on iTunes? Is it on all those things? You can find us on Spotify. You can find it. Find us on Google Podcasts. You can obviously find us on grip.ie um, and you will soon, I believe, be able to find us on iTunes. If you have enjoyed this show, I want to ask two things of you. Number one is we don't, we, David and I, um, you know, we're not rich. We can't afford advertising. Um, we can't afford to take out ads in the Irish Times of how great this podcast is. We're relying on you to send it on to people who you think you might enjoy it, uh, to subscribe to it on one of those platforms so that you get it every week. Um, and, of course, to tell both David and I what you think of what we said um, and to engage with us, because this is a conversation. It's a conversation between me and David, first of all, but it's also a conversation between us, David, and the people who are good enough to listen to us. So um, I, I, for one, have really enjoyed these first three weeks. I think it's been good, and we hope we're going to keep going and going from strength to strength. But in the interim, we'll say um, goodbye for now. We hope you have a great week, and we'll be back here next week talk through the week that really was.